Chapter Twenty, Part Two of The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lehman. Chapter Twenty, Part Two. With the presidential party was Honorable Norman B. Judd. He was supposed to exercise unbounded influence over the new president, and with him, therefore, the detective opened communications. At various places along the route, Mr. Judd was given vague hints of the impending danger, accompanied by the usual assurances of the skill and activity of the patriots, who were periling their lives in a rebel city to save that of the chief magistrate. When he reached New York, he was met by the woman who had originally gone with the other spies to Baltimore. She had urgent messages from her chief, messages that disturbed Mr. Judd exceedingly. The detective was anxious to meet Mr. Judd and the President, and a meeting was accordingly arranged to take place at Philadelphia. Mr. Lincoln reached Philadelphia on the afternoon of the 21st. The detective had arrived in the morning, and improved the interval to impress and enlist Mr. Felton. In the evening he got Mr. Judd and Mr. Felton into his room at the St. Louis Hotel, and told them all he had learned. He dwelt at large on the fierce temper of the Baltimore secessionists, on the loose talk he had heard about fireballs or hand grenades, on a privateer said to be moored somewhere in the bay, on the organization called National Volunteers, on the fact that, eavesdropping at Barnum's Hotel, he had overheard Marshal Kane intimate that he would not supply a police force on some undefined occasion, but what the occasion was he did not know. He made much of his miserable victim, Hilliard, whom he held up as a perfect type of the class from which danger was to be apprehended. But, concerning Captain Fernandina and his threats, he said, according to his own account, not a single word. He had opened his case, his whole case, and stated it as strongly as he could. Mr. Judd was very much startled, and was sure that it would be extremely imprudent for Mr. Lincoln to pass through Baltimore in open daylight, according to the published program. But he thought the detective ought to see the President himself, and, as it was wearing toward nine o'clock, there was no time to lose. It was agreed that the part taken by the detective and Mr. Felton should be kept secret from every one but the president. Mr. Sanford, president of the American Telegraph Company, had also been cooperating in the business, and the same stipulation was made with regard to him. Mr. Judd went to his own room at the Continental, and the detective followed. The crowd in the hotel was very dense, and it took some time to get a message to Mr. Lincoln. But it finally reached him, and he responded in person. Mr. Judd introduced the detective, and the latter told his story over again, with a single variation. This time he mentioned the name of Fernandina, along with Hilliard's, 
but gave no more prominence to one than to the other. Mr. Judd and the detective wanted Lincoln to leave for Washington that night. This he flatly refused to do. He had engagements with the people, he said, to raise a flag over Independence Hall in the morning, and to exhibit himself at Harrisburg in the afternoon. And these engagements he would not break in any event. But he would raise the flag, go to Harrisburg, get away quietly in the evening, and permit himself to be carried to Washington in the way they thought best. Even this, however, he conceded with great reluctance. He condescended to cross-examine the detective on some parts of his narrative, but at no time did he seem in the least degree alarmed. He was earnestly requested not to communicate the change of plan to any member of his party, except Mr. Judd, nor permit even a suspicion of it to cross the mind of another. To this he replied that he would be compelled to tell Mrs. Lincoln, quote, and he thought it likely that she would insist upon w h layman going with him but aside from that no one should know in the meantime mr seward had also discovered the conspiracy he dispatched his son to philadelphia to warn the president-elect of the terrible plot into whose meshes he was about to run mr lincoln turned him over to judd and judd told him they already knew all about it he went away with just enough information to enable his father to anticipate the exact moment of Mr. Lincoln's surreptitious arrival in Washington. Early on the morning of the 22nd, Mr. Lincoln raised a flag over Independence Hall and departed for Harrisburg. On the way, Mr. Judd, quote, gave him a full and precise detail of the arrangements that had been made, end quote, the previous night. After the conference with the detective, Mr. Sanford, Colonel Scott, Mr. Felton, railroad and telegraph officials, had been sent for, and came to Mr. Judd's room. They occupied nearly the whole of the night in perfecting the plan. It was finally understood that about six o'clock the next evening, Mr. Lincoln should slip away from the Jones Hotel at Harrisburg, in company with a single member of his party. A special car and engine would be provided for him on the track outside the depot. All other trains on the road would be sidetracked until this one had passed. Mr. Stanford would forward skilled telegraph climbers and see that all the wires leading out of Harrisburg were cut at six o'clock and kept down until it was known that Mr. Lincoln had reached Washington in safety. The detective would meet Mr. Lincoln at the West Philadelphia depot with a carriage and conduct him by a circuitous route to the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore depot. Berths for four would be pre-engaged in the sleeping car attached to the regular midnight train for Baltimore. This train Mr. Felton would cause to be detained until the conductor should receive a package containing important government dispatches addressed to E.J. Allen, Willard's Hotel, Washington. This package was made up of old newspapers, carefully wrapped and sealed, and delivered to the detective, to be used as soon as Mr. Lincoln was lodged in the car. Mr. Lincoln approved of the plan, and signified his readiness to acquiesce. Then Mr. Judd, forgetting the secrecy which the spy had so impressively enjoined, told Mr. Lincoln that the step he was about to take was one of such transcendent importance that he thought, quote, it should be communicated to the other gentlemen of the party, 
End quote. Mr. Lincoln said, quote, You can do as you like about that. End quote. Mr. Judd now changed his seat, and Mr. Nicolay, whose suspicions seemed to have been aroused by this mysterious conference, sat down beside him and said, quote, Judd, there is something up. What is it, if it is proper that I should know? End quote. Quote, George, answered Judd, there is no necessity for your knowing it. One man can keep a matter better than two. End quote. Arrived at Harrisburg, and the public ceremonies and speech-making over, Mr. Lincoln retired to a private parlor in the Jones House, and Mr. Judd summoned to meet him Judge Davis, Colonel Lehman, Colonel Sumner, Major Hunter, and Captain Pope. The three latter were officers of the regular army, and had joined the party after it had left Springfield. Judd began the conference by stating the alleged fact of the Baltimore conspiracy, how it was detected, and how it was proposed to thwart it by a midnight expedition to Washington by way of Philadelphia. It was a great surprise to most of those assembled. Colonel Sumner was the first to break silence. Quote, that proceeding, said he, will be a damned piece of cowardice. End quote. Mr. Judd considered this a pointed hint, but replied that, quote, that view of the case had already been presented to Mr. Lincoln. End quote. Then there was a general interchange of opinions, which Sumner interrupted by saying, quote, I'll get a squad of cavalry, sir, and cut our way to Washington, sir. End quote. Quote, Probably before that day comes, said Mr. Judd, the inauguration day will have passed. It is important that Mr. Lincoln should be in Washington that day. End quote. Thus far, Judge Davis had expressed no opinion, but, quote, had put various questions to test the truthfulness of the story. End quote. He now turned to Mr. Lincoln and said, quote, You personally heard the detective's story. You have heard this discussion. What is your judgment in the matter? End quote. Quote, I have listened, answered Mr. Lincoln, to this discussion with interest. I see no reason, no good reason, to change the program, and I am for carrying it out as arranged by Judd. End quote. There was no longer any dissent as to the plan itself, but one question still remained to be disposed of. Who should accompany the President on his perilous ride? Mr. Judd again took the lead, declaring that he and Mr. Lincoln had previously determined that but one man ought to go, and that Colonel Lehman had been selected as the proper person. To this, Sumner violently demurred. Quote, I have undertaken, he exclaimed, to see Mr. Lincoln to Washington. End quote. Mr. Lincoln was hastily dining when a closed carriage was brought to the side door of the hotel. He was called, hurried to his room, changed his coat and hat, and passed rapidly through the hall and out of the door. As he was stepping into the carriage, it became manifest that Sumner was determined to get in also. Quote, hurry with him, end quote, whispered Judd to Layman, and at the same time, placing his hand on Sumner's shoulder, said aloud, quote, one moment, Colonel, end quote. Sumner turned around, and in that moment, the carriage drove rapidly away. Quote, a madder man, says Mr. Judd, you never saw. End quote. Mr. Lincoln and Colonel Lehman got on board the car without discovery or mishap. Besides themselves, 
there was no one in or about the car but mr lewis general superintendent of the pennsylvania central railroad and mr franciscus superintendent of the division over which they were about to pass as mr lincoln's dress on this occasion had been much discussed it may be as well to state that he wore a soft light felt hat drawn down over his face when it seemed necessary or convenient and a shawl thrown over his shoulders and pulled up to assist in disguising his features when passing to and from the carriage this was all there was of the scotch cap and cloak so widely celebrated in the political literature of the day at ten o'clock they reached philadelphia and were met by the detective and one mr kinney an under-official of the philadelphia wilmington and baltimore railroad lewis and franciscus bade mr lincoln adieu mr lincoln colonel layman and the detective seated themselves in the carriage which stood in waiting and mr kinney got upon the box with the driver it was a full hour and a half before the baltimore train was to start and mr kinney found it necessary quote, to consume the time by driving northward in search of some imaginary person end quote. on the way through philadelphia mr lincoln told his companions about the message he had received from mr seward this new discovery was infinitely more appalling than the other mr seward had been informed quote, that about fifteen thousand men were organized to prevent his lincoln's passage through baltimore and that arrangements were made by these parties to blow up the railroad track fire the train etc in view of these unpleasant circumstances mr seward recommended a change of route here was a plot big enough to swallow up the little one which we are to regard as the peculiar property of mr felton's detective hilliard fernandina and luckett disappear among the fifteen thousand and their maudlin and impotent twaddle about the abolition tyrant looked very insignificant beside the bloody massacre conflagration and explosion now foreshadowed as the moment for the departure of the baltimore train drew near the carriage paused in the dark shadows of the depot building it was not considered prudent to approach the entrance the spy passed in first and was followed by mr lincoln and colonel layman an agent of the former directed them to the sleeping car which they entered by the rear door mr kinney ran forward and delivered to the conductor the important package prepared for the purpose and in three minutes the train was in motion the tickets for the whole party had been procured beforehand their berths were ready but had only been preserved from invasion by the statement that they were retained for a sick man and his attendants the business had been managed very adroitly by the female spy who had accompanied her employer from baltimore to philadelphia to assist him in this the most delicate and important affair of his life mr lincoln got into his bed immediately and the curtains were drawn together when the conductor came around the detective handed him the sick man's ticket and the rest of the party lay down also none of quote, our party appeared to be sleepy says the detective but we all lay quiet and nothing of importance transpired End quote. Quote, mr lincoln is very homely said the woman in her report and so very tall that he could not lay straight in his berth during the night mr lincoln indulged in a joke or two in an undertone but with that exception the two sections occupied by them 
were perfectly silent. The detective said he had men stationed at various places along the road to let him know if all was right, and he rose and went to the platform occasionally to observe their signals, but returned each time with a favorable report. At thirty minutes after three, the train reached Baltimore. One of the spy's assistants came on board and informed him, in a whisper, that all was right. The woman got out of the car. Mr. Lincoln lay close in his berth, and in a few moments the car was being slowly drawn through the quiet streets of the city toward the Washington depot. There again there was another pause, but no sound more alarming than the noise of shifting cars and engines. The passengers, tucked away on their narrow shelves, dozed on as peacefully as if Mr. Lincoln had never been born, until they were awakened by the loud strokes of a huge club against a night watchman's box, which stood within the depot and close to the track. It was an Irishman trying to arouse a sleepy ticket agent, comfortably ensconced within. For twenty minutes the Irishman pounded the box with ever-increasing vigor, and at each report of his blows, shouted at the top of his voice, quote, Captain, it's four o'clock, it's four o'clock, The Irishman seemed to think the time had ceased to run at four o'clock, and making no allowance for the period consumed by his futile exercises, repeated to the last his original statement that it was four o'clock. The passengers were intensely amused, and their jokes and laughter at the Irishman's expense were not lost upon the occupants of the two sections in the rear. Quote, Mr. Lincoln, says the detective, appeared to enjoy it very much, and made several witty remarks, showing that he was as full of fun as ever. In due time the train sped out of the suburbs of Baltimore, and the apprehensions of the President and his friends diminished with each welcome revolution of the wheels. At six o'clock the dome of the Capitol came in sight, and a moment later they rolled into the long, unsightly building which forms the Washington Depot. They passed out of the car unobserved, and pushed along with the living stream of men and women toward the outer door. One man alone in the great crowd seemed to watch Mr. Lincoln with special attention. Standing a little on one side, he looked very sharp at him, and, as he passed, seized hold of his hand and said in a low tone of voice, Abe, you can't play that on me. The detective and Colonel Lehman were instantly alarmed. One of them raised his fist to strike the stranger, but Mr. Lincoln caught his arm and said, quote, Don't strike him. Don't strike him. It is Washburn. Don't you know him? End quote. Mr. Seward had given to Mr. Washburn a hint of the information received through his son, and Mr. Washburn knew its value as well as another. For the present, the detective admonished him to keep quiet, and they passed on together. Taking a hack, they drove towards Willard's Hotel. Mr. Lincoln, Mr. Washburn, and the detectives got out in the street and approached the ladies' entrance, while Colonel Lehman drove on to the main entrance and sent the proprietor to meet his distinguished guest at the side door. A few minutes later, Mr. Seward arrived and was introduced to the company by Mr. Washburn. He spoke in very strong terms of the great danger which Mr. Lincoln had so narrowly escaped and most heartily applauded the wisdom of the secret passage. Quote, I informed Governor Seward of the nature of the information I had, says the detective, and that I had no information of any large organization in Baltimore, 
but the governor reiterated that he had conclusive evidence of this. End quote. It soon became apparent that Mr. Lincoln wished to be left alone. He said he was rather tired, and, upon his intimation, the party separated. The detective went to the telegraph office and loaded the wires with dispatches, containing the pleasing intelligence that plums had brought nuts through in safety. In the spy's cipher, the president-elect was reduced to the undignified title of nuts. That same day, Mr. Lincoln's family and suite passed through Baltimore on the special train intended for him. They saw no sign of any disposition to burn them alive or to blow them up with gunpowder, but went their way unmolested and very happy. Mr. Lincoln soon learned to regret the midnight ride. His friends reproached him. His enemies taunted him. He was convinced that he had committed a grave mistake in yielding to the solicitations of a professional spy and of friends too easily alarmed. He saw that he had fled from a danger purely imaginary, and felt the shame and mortification natural to a brave man under such circumstances. But he was not disposed to take all the responsibility to himself, and frequently upbraided the writer for having aided and assisted him to demean himself at the very moment in all his life when his behavior should have exhibited the utmost dignity and composure. The news of his surreptitious entry into Washington occasioned much and varied comment throughout the country, but important events followed it in such rapid succession that its real significance was soon lost sight of. Enough that Mr. Lincoln was safely at the Capitol, and in a few days would in all probability assume the power confided to his hands. If before leaving Springfield he had become weary of the pressure upon him for office, he found no respite on his arrival at the focus of political intrigue and corruption. The intervening days before his inauguration were principally occupied in arranging the construction of the cabinet. He was pretty well determined on this subject before he reached Washington, but, in the minds of the public, beyond the generally accepted fact that Mr. Seward was to be the premier of the new administration, all was speculation and conjecture. From the circumstances of the case, he was compelled to give patient ear to the representations which were made him in favor of or against various persons or parties, and to hold his final decisions to the last moment, in order that he might decide with a full view of the requirements of public policy and party fealty. The close of this volume is not the place to enter into a detailed history of the circumstances which attended the inauguration of Mr. Lincoln's administration, nor of the events which signalized the close of Mr. Buchanan's. The history of the former cannot be understood without tracing its relation to that of the latter, and both demand more impartial consideration than either has yet received. The 4th of March, 1861, at last arrived, and at noon on that day, the administration of James Buchanan was to come to a close, and that of Abraham Lincoln was to take its place. Mr. Lincoln's feelings, as the hour approached, which was to invest him with great responsibilities than had fallen upon any of his predecessors, may readily be imagined by the readers of the foregoing pages. If he saw in his elevation another step towards the fulfillment of that destiny, which at times he believed awaited him, the thought served but to tinge with a peculiar, almost poetic sadness, the manner in which he addressed himself to the solemn duties of the hour. The morning opened pleasantly. 
at an early hour he gave his inaugural address its final revision extensive preparations had been made to render the occasion as impressive as possible by nine o'clock the procession had begun to form and at eleven o'clock it commenced to move toward willard's hotel mr buchanan was still at the capitol signing bills till the official term of his office expired at half-past twelve he called for mr lincoln and after a delay of a few moments both descended and entered the open barouche and waiting for them shortly after the procession took up its line of march for the capital apprehensions existed that possibly some attempt might be made to assassinate mr lincoln and accordingly his carriage was carefully surrounded by the military and the committee of arrangements by order of general scott troops were placed at various points about the city as well as on the tops of some of the houses along the route of the procession the senate remained in session till twelve o'clock when mr breckinridge in a few well-chosen words bade the senators farewell and then conducted his successor mr hamlin to the chair at this moment members and members-elect of the house of representatives and the diplomatic corps entered the chamber at thirteen minutes to one the judges of the supreme court were announced and on their entrance headed by the venerable chief justice taney all on the floor arose while they moved slowly to the seats assigned them at the right of the vice-president bowing to that officer as they passed at fifteen minutes past one the marshal-in-chief entered the chamber ushering in the president and president-elect mr lincoln looked pale and wan and anxious in a few moments the marshal led the way to the platform at the eastern portico of the capitol where preparations had been made for the inauguration ceremony and he was followed by the judges of the supreme court sergeant-at-arms of the senate the committee of arrangements the president and president-elect vice-president secretary of the senate senators diplomatic corps heads of departments and others in the chamber on arriving at the platform mr lincoln was introduced to the assembly by the hon e d baker united states senator from oregon stepping forward in a manner deliberate and impressive he read in a clear penetrating voice the following inaugural address fellow citizens of the united states in compliance with a custom as old as the government itself i appear before you to address you briefly and to take in your presence the oath prescribed by the constitution of the united states to be taken by the president before he enters on the execution of his office i do not consider it necessary at present for me to discuss those matters of administration about which there is no special anxiety or excitement apprehension seems to exist among the people of the southern states that by the accession of a republican administration their property and their peace and personal security are to be endangered there has never been any reasonable cause for such apprehension indeed the most ample evidence to the contrary has all the while existed and been open to their inspection it is found in nearly all the published speeches of him who now addresses you i do but quote from one of those speeches when i declare that quote, i have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists i believe i have no lawful right to do so and i have no inclination to do so 
those who nominated and elected me do so with the full knowledge that i have made this and many similar declarations and had never recanted them and more than this they placed in the platform for my acceptance and as a law to themselves and to me the clear and emphatic resolution which i now read quote, resolved that the maintenance inviolate of the rights of the states and especially the right of each state to order and control its own domestic institutions according to its own judgment exclusively is essential to that balance of power on which the perfection and endurance of our political fabric depend and we denounce the lawless invasion by armed force of the soil of any state or territory no matter under what pretext as among the gravest of crimes End quote. i now reiterate these sentiments and in doing so i only press upon the public attention the most conclusive evidence of which the case is susceptible that the property peace and security of no section are to be in any wise endangered by the now incoming administration i add too that all the protection which consistently with the constitution and the laws can be given will be cheerfully given to all the states when lawfully demanded for whatever cause as cheerfully to one section as to another there is much controversy about the delivering up of fugitives from service or labor the clause i now read is as plainly written in the constitution as any other of its provisions Quote, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service or labor but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due it is scarcely questioned that this provision was intended by those who made it for the reclaiming of what we call fugitive slaves and the intention of the lawgiver is the law all members of congress swear their support to the whole constitution to this provision as well as any other to the proposition then that slaves whose cases come within the terms of this clause shall be delivered up their oaths are unanimous now if they would make the effort in good temper could they not with nearly equal unanimity frame and pass a law by means of which to keep good that unanimous oath there is some difference of opinion whether this clause should be enforced by national or by state authority but surely that difference is not a very material one if the slave is to be surrendered it can be of but little consequence to him or to others by which authority it is done and should any one in any case be content that this oath shall go unkept on a merely unsubstantial controversy as to how it shall be kept again in any law upon this subject ought not all the safeguards of liberty known in civilized and humane jurisprudence to be introduced so that a free man be not in any case surrendered as a slave and might it not be well at the same time to provide by law for the enforcement of that clause in the constitution which guarantees that quote, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states End quote. I take the official oath today with no mental reservations, and with no purpose to construe the Constitution or laws by any hypercritical rules, and, while I do not choose now 
to specify particular acts of Congress as proper to be enforced, I do suggest that it will be much safer for all, both in official and private stations, to conform to and abide by all those acts which stand unrepealed, than to violate any of them, trusting to find impunity in having them held to be unconstitutional. It is seventy-two years since the first inauguration of a president under our national constitution. During that period, fifteen different and very distinguished citizens have in succession administered the executive branch of the government. They have conducted it through many perils, and generally with great success. Yet, with all this scope for precedent, I now enter upon the same task for the brief constitutional term of four years, under great and peculiar difficulties. A disruption of the Federal Union, heretofore only menaced, is now formidably attempted. I hold that, in the contemplation of universal law and of the Constitution, the union of these states is perpetual. Perpetuity is implied, if not expressed, in the fundamental law of all national governments. It is safe to assert that no government proper ever had a provision in its organic law for its own termination, continued to execute all the express provisions of our national constitution, and the Union will endure forever, it being impossible to destroy it, except by some action not provided for in the instrument itself. Again, if the United States be not a government proper, but an association of states in the nature of a contract merely, can it, as a contract, be peaceably unmade by less than all the parties who made it. One party to a contract may violate it, break it, so to speak, but does it not require all to lawfully rescind it? Descending from these general principles, we find the proposition that in legal contemplation the Union is perpetual, confirmed by the history of the Union itself. The Union is much older than the Constitution, it was formed, in fact, by the Articles of Association in 1774. It was matured and continued in the Declaration of Independence in 1776. It was further matured, and the faith of all the then thirteen states expressly plighted and engaged that it should be perpetual, by the Articles of Confederation in 1778, and finally, in 1787, one of the declared objects for ordaining and establishing the Constitution was to form a more perfect Union. But, if the destruction of the Union, by one or by a part, only of the States, be lawfully possible, the Union is less than before, the Constitution having lost the vital element of perpetuity. It follows from these views that no State, upon its own mere motion, can lawfully get out of the Union, that resolves and ordinances to that effect are legally void, and that acts of violence within any state or states against the authority of the United States are insurrectionary or revolutionary according to circumstances. I therefore consider that, in view of the Constitution and the laws, the Union is unbroken, and to the extent of my ability, I shall take care, as the Constitution itself expressly enjoins upon me, that the laws of the Union shall be faithfully executed in all the states. Doing this, which I deem to be only a simple duty on my part, I shall perfectly perform it, so far as is practicable, unless my rightful masters, the American people, shall withhold the requisite power, 
or in some authoritative manner direct the contrary. I trust this will not be regarded as a menace, but only as the declared purpose of the Union, that it will constitutionally defend and maintain itself. In doing this, there need be no bloodshed or violence, and there shall be none, unless it is forced upon the national authority. The power confided to me will be used to hold, occupy, and possess the property and places belonging to the government, and collect the duties and imposts, but, beyond what may be necessary for these objects, there will be no invasion, no using of force against or among the people anywhere. Where hostility to the United States shall be so great and so universal as to prevent competent resident citizens from holding the federal offices, there will be no attempt to force obnoxious strangers among the people for that object. While the strict legal right may exist of the government to enforce the exercise of these offices, the attempt to do so would be so irritating and so nearly impracticable withal that I deem it better to forego for the time the uses of such offices. The mails, unless repelled, will continue to be furnished in all parts of the Union. So far as possible, the people everywhere shall have that sense of perfect security which is most favorable to calm thought and reflection. The course here indicated will be followed, unless current events and experience shall show a modification or change to be proper, and in every case and exigency my best discretion will be exercised according to the circumstances actually existing, and with a view and hope of a peaceful solution of the national troubles, and the restoration of fraternal sympathies and affections. That there are persons, in one section or another, who seek to destroy the Union at all events, and are glad of any pretext to do it, I will neither affirm nor deny. But, if there be such, I need address no word to them. To those, however, who really love the Union, may I not speak. Before entering upon so grave a matter as the destruction of our national fabric, with all its benefits, its memories, and its hopes, would it not be well to ascertain why we do it? Will you hazard so desperate a step, while any portion of the ills you fly from have no real existence? Will you, while the certain ills you fly to are greater than all the real ones you fly from, will you risk the commission of so fearful a mistake? All profess to be content in the Union if all constitutional rights can be maintained. Is it true, then, that any right plainly written in the Constitution has been denied? I think not. Happily the human mind is so constituted that no party can reach to the audacity of doing this. Think, if you can, of a single instance in which a plainly written provision of the Constitution has ever been denied. If, by the mere force of numbers, a majority should deprive a minority of any clearly written constitutional right, it might, in a moral point of view, justify revolution. It certainly would, if such right were a vital one. But such is not our case. All the vital rights of minorities and of individuals are so plainly assured to them, by affirmations and negations, guarantees and prohibitions, in the Constitution, the controversies never arise concerning them, but no organic law can ever be framed with the provision specifically applicable to every question which may occur in practical administration. No foresight can anticipate, or any document of reasonable length contain, express provisions for all possible questions. 
shall fugitives from labor be surrendered by national or by state authority the constitution does not expressly say must congress protect slavery in the territories the constitution does not expressly say from questions of this class spring all our constitutional controversies and we divide upon them into majorities and minorities if the minority will not acquiesce the majority must or the government must cease there is no alternative for continuing the government but acquiescence on the one side or the other if a minority in such a case will secede rather than acquiesce they make a precedent which in turn will ruin and divide them for a minority of their own will secede from them whenever a majority refuses to be controlled by such a minority for instance why not any portion of a new confederacy a year or two hence arbitrarily secede again precisely as portions of the present union now claim to secede from it all who cherish disunion sentiments are now being educated to the exact temper of doing this is there such perfect identity of interests among the states to compose a new union as to produce harmony only and prevent renewed secession plainly the central idea of secession is the essence of anarchy a majority held in restraint by constitutional check and limitation and always changing easily with deliberate changes of popular opinions and sentiments is the only true sovereign of a free people whoever rejects it does of necessity fly to anarchy or to despotism unanimity is impossible the rule of a minority as a permanent arrangement is wholly inadmissible so that rejecting the majority principle anarchy or despotism in some form is all that is left i do not forget the position assumed by some the constitutional questions are to be decided by the supreme court nor do i deny that such decisions must be binding in any case upon the parties to a suit as to the object of that suit while they are also entitled to very high respect and consideration in all parallel cases by all other departments of the government and while it is obviously possible that such decision may be erroneous in any given case still the evil effect following it being limited to that particular case with the chance that it may be overruled and never become a precedent for other cases can better be borne than could the evils of a different practice at the same time the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon the vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by the decisions of the supreme court the instant they are made as in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions the people will have ceased to be their own masters having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal nor is there in this view any assault upon the court or the judges it is a duty from which they may not shrink to decide cases properly brought before them and it is no fault of theirs if others seek to turn their decisions to political purposes one section of our country believes slavery is right and ought to be extended while the other believes it is wrong and ought not to be extended and this is the only substantial dispute and the fugitive slave clause of the constitution and the law for the suppression of the foreign slave trade are each as well enforced perhaps as any law can ever be in a community where the moral sense of the people imperfectly supports the law itself the great body of the people abide by the dry 
legal obligation in both cases, and a few break over in each. This, I think, cannot be perfectly cured, and it would be worse in both cases after the separation of the sections than before. The foreign slave trade, now imperfectly suppressed, would be ultimately revived, without restriction, in one section, while fugitive slaves, not only partially surrendered, would not be surrendered at all by the other. Physically speaking, we cannot separate, we cannot remove our respective sections from each other, nor build an impassable wall between them. A husband and a wife may be divorced, and go out of the presence and beyond the reach of each other, but the different parts of our country cannot do this. They cannot but remain face to face, and intercourse, either amicable or hostile, must continue between them. Is it possible, then, to make that intercourse more advantageous, or more satisfactory after separation than before? Can aliens make treaties easier than friends can make laws? Can treaties be more faithfully enforced between aliens than laws can among friends? Suppose you go to war, you cannot fight always, and when, after much loss on both sides, and no gain on either, you cease fighting, the identical questions as to terms of intercourse are again upon you. This country, with its institutions, belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of the existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending, or their revolutionary right to dismember or overthrow it. I cannot be ignorant of the fact that many worthy and patriotic citizens are desirous of having the national constitution amended. While I make no recommendation of amendment, I fully recognize the full authority of the people over the whole subject, to be exercised in either of the modes prescribed in the instrument itself, and I should, under existing circumstances, favor rather than oppose a fair opportunity being afforded the people to act upon it. I will venture to add that to me the convention mode seems preferable and that it allows amendments to originate with the people themselves, instead of only permitting them to take or reject propositions originated by others not especially chosen for the purpose, and which might not be precisely such as they would wish either to accept or refuse. I understand that a proposed amendment to the Constitution, which amendment, however, I have not seen, has passed Congress, to the effect that the Federal Government shall never interfere with the domestic institutions of states, including that of persons held to service. To avoid misconstruction of what I have said, I depart from my purpose not to speak of particular amendments, so far as to say, that, holding such a provision to now be implied constitutional law, I have no objection to its being made express and irrevocable. The Chief Magistrate derives all his authority from the people, and they have conferred none upon him to fix the terms for the separation of the states. The people themselves, also, can do this if they choose, but the executive, as such, has nothing to do with it. His duty is to administer the present government as it came to his hands, and to transmit it, unimpaired by him, to his successor. Why should there not be a patient confidence in the ultimate justice of the people? Is there any better or equal hope in the world? In our present differences, is either party without faith of being in the right? If the Almighty Ruler of Nations, with His eternal truth and justice, be on your side of the North, or on yours of the South, that truth and that justice 
was surely prevailed by the judgment of this great tribunal, the American people. By the frame of the government under which we live, this same people have wisely given their public servants but little power for mischief, and have, with equal wisdom, provided for the return of that little to their own hands at very short intervals. While the people retain their virtue and vigilance, no administration, by any extreme wickedness or folly, can very seriously injure the government in the short space of four years. My countrymen, one and all, think calmly and well upon this whole subject. Nothing valuable can be lost by taking time. If there be an object to hurry any of you, in hot haste, to a step which you would never take deliberately, that object will be frustrated by taking time, but no good object can be frustrated by it. Such of you as are now dissatisfied still have the old constitution unimpaired, and, on the sensitive point, the laws of your own framing under it, while the new administration will have no immediate power, if it would, to change either. If it were admitted that you who are dissatisfied hold the right side in the dispute, there is still no single reason for precipitous action. Intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him who has never yet forsaken this favored land, are still competent to adjust, in the best way, all our present difficulties. In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. You can have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave, to every living heart and hearthstone, all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union, when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. This address, so characteristic of its author, and so full of the best qualities of Mr. Lincoln's nature, was well received by the large audience, which heard it. Having finished, Mr. Lincoln turned to Chief Justice Taney, who, with much apparent agitation and emotion, administered to him the following oath. Quote, I, Abraham Lincoln, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. End quote. The ceremony concluded. Mr. Lincoln, as President of the United States, in charge of the Committee of Arrangements, was accompanied by Mr. Buchanan back to the Senate Chamber, and from there to the Executive Mansion. Here Mr. Buchanan took leave of him, invoking upon his administration a peaceful and happy result. And here for the present we leave him. In another volume we shall endeavor to trace his career as the nation's chief magistrate during the ensuing four years. End of chapter 20 Part 2 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida